I'm Hugh Ronzani and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome to Tales of Baroque. Welcome, welcome to to Tales of Baroque. Each episode you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world. It's characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. So, wherever you are, sit back, relax and enjoy this deep dive into Ottoman Baroque. Hello, Alan. Lovely to have you with me uh, in Sydney. Unfortunately, it's a bit chilly today, but uh, but lovely all the same and a beautiful blue sky for our podcast recording today. Sure is. Yeah, it's lovely to be back, um, Hugh. I've just been overseas for the last few months, in fact, and uh, just been to a Baroque music conference. So it's nice to be back in Australia and to be talking music with you again. Well, we have a fascinating program, but it's not all uh, European Baroque. In fact, it's not at all European Baroque. This time around, it's a it's a, an Ottoman Baroque program, and um, and Alan, last time a similar program was produced by the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra was in 2014, and you had a a, a very strong hand in in that uh, program and and a lot of research that was done as well. Yeah, that was a, a really lovely program, and um, I had the pleasure of uh, kind of narrating it from the stage, um, which uh, allowed us to kind of tell a story. And for that program, we it was kind of a story of moving from west to east. So we had uh, European Baroque music, and then we moved gradually further towards the east and talked about the interactions between European and uh, Ottoman cultures and uh, finished up with the uh, Mevlevi um, Whirling Dervishes ceremony in the second half of the program. And so uh, we're going to hear the and see the, the dervishes again, I know, in, in this program. But uh, I understand you've organised quite a different kind of uh, program to get us there, that this is not so much a journey from the West to, to East as uh, much more of a kind of collaboration, a meeting between East and West. Is that a fair way of putting it? I think so. Obviously, I mean, you've put me on the spot in a way because I have been heavily involved this time around uh, myself in the in the musical uh, elements that we're going to see on stage. And that's because it's less about the words. It's less about the story and some sort of narration of a journey from west to east as it is about the exploration of the um, the, the music and the emotional side of, of things or the spiritual side of things um, that we sometimes correlate with um, with mysticism we with this this particular brand of Sufi music and and Paul uh, through his experiences having been now several times to, to Turkey and been to Konya uh, to experience firsthand the the semi ceremony actually seated next to Rumi's 22nd uh, generation granddaughter who is um, who is a, essentially a living relative of, of, of Rumi direct descendant and uh, he himself has been transformed by I think by his travels. He, he himself has been transformed by 
what he has seen, what he has heard. And I think it's this transformative experience that he wants to share with audiences. I think it's the, the, it really is getting to the heart of, of some sort of more spiritual uh, experience rather than a, 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 the sorts of concert experiences we're more familiar with. Yeah, and that's one thing that I'm really looking forward to with this because uh, we are really exploring a different kind of experience in the concert hall, which takes us away from the traditional concert experience of just performing pieces of art music and listening to them, um, but rather to entering in a way into the kind of devotional experience, which uh, we have in both Western and Eastern traditions and which we, we find kind of meeting together in, in this program. And with that in mind, I'm looking forward to uh, actually in, in our discussion interviewing you a bit more, uh, Hugh, than, <laughs> rather than the other way around, because I know you have been so heavily involved in developing this program and also in your role as a composer, right? You're, You've uh, had a role in, in composing and arranging music for this program. That's right. And I have to admit that um, I, I certainly am no expert or don't profess to be as some sort of expert in, in Turkish music at all. I, I've learnt a lot of things as I've been uh, going along and researching for, this, um, for the musical work that I've done for this program. And what I've been fascinated by is just how rich the, um, the treatment of melody especially is um, in the Turkish tradition and the, the Ottoman tradition. Uh, they, they really have a, a, a totally different uh, notion of, um, of pitch organization and, and really like what is a melody, what is uh, an interesting rhythm as well. And they uh, certainly... I think have a have have a very oral tradition where um, certain performance practices aren't written on the page, so you might not be able to necessarily read about some of these things, but you have to go in and and listen to performers uh, actually playing the music to try and start to get at and figure out just how that music ticks. And one particular piece that I've created an arrangement for is the Nahavant Longa. It's a very popular tune, which is a more recent tune than uh, than the sorts of uh, music that we're used to hearing with um, the, the Brandenburg. Now, the original composer's name is Kamani Hanim Kevsa, and she was born uh, in the late uh, 19th century, but, uh, but we know very little details about her life, except for the fact that she was the first um, female, uh, the female member of staff at the, uh, at the Ottoman Music Conservatorium in, in Istanbul. And this tune is, is it, it's even uh, as to how Turkish it really is, is, is also another a point of discussion because it's actually based on a Romanian gypsy uh, sort of style of music that was popularized in Istanbul at the time. So uh, it, it's just a fascinating uh, compilation of, of, um, uh, of influences. And hence, I've, I've tried to sort of speak to that through, the, through that particular arrangement. Wow, that sounds great. I'm really looking forward to hearing that. But it does also kind of tell us something about the nature of Turkish music as well, because it is very eclectic and there are a whole lot of different kinds of traditions, both art music and, and sort of folk or traditional music styles, uh, which uh, have very long histories in Turkey and have come from a whole lot of different influences across the Middle East and uh, Western Asia. Um, and lots of those different traditions still have uh, resonances and, and are traditions that are maintained in Turkey uh, up to the present day. Um, so uh, 
there, there are, of course, crossing points between those and influences from all of those different sorts of traditions. And that sounds like a nice illustration of, of that fact. Um, so I guess in the way that in, in Western music, we have uh, distinct genres and traditions. We talk about uh, classical music, jazz, uh, pop music and so forth. And uh, there are many different kinds of styles in Turkish music that we don't really hear at all in the West. Uh, but which are quite important parts of uh, of the traditions that that kind of feed into what makes Turkish music what it is today. And I think this is a, an important point that um, anyone interested in studying music composition or in studying music, full stop. Um, you know, you sometimes you do need to broaden your horizons. And and this project for me has been one of those instances where I've I feel like I've grown and learnt actually quite a lot by by doing some. Um, even very simple research and, and lots of listening to this this sort of music to try and get a feel for um, for for what's going on, and and in terms of the the concert experience now back to to, to Ottoman Baroque more as as a whole and and what we're going to hear, uh, the experience really is uh, centered on one particular figure uh, in uh, Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi. Uh, who uh, was a 13th century uh, mystic figure, uh, but now the second highest selling poet in the United States of America, so far as I'm, I'm led to believe by what you can read online. Um, perhaps you could tell us about Rumi, uh, Alan, and, um, and what, well, what is it about Rumi that, that still resonates with people today? And, uh, and why is Rumi a central figure to the story of Ottoman Baroque? Yeah, to, we should perhaps go back a, a step and explain a little bit more about what's going to be in the program. So the, the second half of the program, uh, the first half is is elements of um, both Turkish and uh, and kind of Western uh, influences in, in Turkish music, and we'll talk more about that later. The second half is the uh, Sema ceremony performed by the um, whirling dervishes, uh, and this is part of this is this is the the uh, embodiment of a tradition that goes back to the 13th century. It's um, part of the Sufi tradition within Islam, uh, which has its very particular form of devotional practice, and uh, that is, I think, what inspired Paul Dyer to to be interested in this and to to do these two collaborations back in 2014 and now uh, again this year. Um, with Turkish musicians uh, to to present this kind of um, practice and its special music to Australian audiences. So it does go back to the 13th century um, and the establishment of what was not in uh, what was a new kind of religious order within Sufism, which is itself uh, a branch of Islam. Um, and uh, Rumi's particular influence was to, to bring in a kind of mystical uh, element, as you mentioned before, into uh, Sufi uh, religious practice. And that developed within a generation or so into the, the uh, use of a, uh, this particular kind of ceremonial uh, process in which um, people uh, turn on the spot in a very particular way to develop a kind of um, transcendent experience. And that's accompanied by a musical uh, tradition, which was developed from that time right up to the, particularly up to the 17th and 18th centuries, 
uh, and has remained in use ever since. So Rumi is uh, the, a really central foundational figure in this. Um, he was, as we've said, a poet and mystic. He was uh, a, uh, an Islamic jurist as well, a very learned man. And uh, his life experience, though, took him through a lot of different places and a lot of different kinds of um, approaches to, I guess, Islamic spirituality um, and led him to, the, to this uh, kind of mystical practice, which forms the foundation for the Mevlevi uh, order and the kind of ceremony that we're going to see in and hear in this program. So obviously we're talking about the 13th century. Was there a, a similar or an analogous movement towards a, a mystical approach or a mystical way of thinking in, in the West as well? Or, or who, were some of the, who were some of the contemporaries that, um, that, uh, that uh, our audience members may be more familiar with if they're not so familiar with, with Rumi and what was happening in the Ottoman Empire at this time? Yeah, in uh, of course, mysticism has been an important aspect of uh, religious traditions all over the world, and certainly it was in Western Europe and especially in the Middle Ages. Uh, and perhaps the most famous musician associated with that in, in Western Europe that people might know today is Hildegard of Bingen, uh, who was a nun, uh, founder of an abbey and very unusual in being uh, a very prominent woman in the church during this period. Uh, very unusually, she was able to travel to some extent. She preached to, uh, to congregations, in, including men and even to the Pope. Um, and amongst um, her very many accomplishments across uh, the arts and science and religion and so forth was her uh, composition of uh, many new chants. So they're in the style of Gregorian chant, but they uh, were to her own mystical poetry. She uh, was a visionary. She had uh, some kind of um, what we might call a, a sort of hallucinatory um, mystical experience in which she saw visions and uh, she wrote uh, poetry often based on those visions and set them to music herself in a chant style. And so these are some of the really important um, musical foundations uh, of, um, of Western music. Really interesting in that she was a female composer, of course, uh, and something analogous just a century or so before Rumi uh, in the Western context. Uh, can we have a listen to a bit of Hildegard by way of comparison? Oh, well, of, of course. Um, now, uh, our listeners may recall, uh, as part of the Sydney Festival in 2020, the Brandenburg performed a wonderful program called Universal Woman, uh, which was centred on Hildegard von Bingen and actually had a, a narration uh, element to it as well. It was sort of half production, half um, music, as it were. And um, and one of uh, during my listening at the, at that time, one of the the tracks from uh, uh, Barbara Thornton's group Sequentia that I uh, became rather enamoured with um, was from their 1994 album Canticles of Ecstasy, and this is Ovis Eternitatis, which I feel really just strikes to the heart of what we're talking about in in or, or rather how mysticism sounds to me, um, which is which is a wonderful track that I'll I'll share with. You now. So this again is is Barbara Thornton with her group Sequentia uh, performing Ovis Eternitatis.
one of the things, Alan, that strikes me about this recording is how it starts with the the drone. What do we know of musical practices at the the time? Would would this have been the case? Something that Hildegard would have been able to to use as well in her own musical practice, that having some sort of stringed instrument like a rebec or something similar, um, playing alongside, uh, playing with the the chant. Uh, it's it's certainly possible. Um, the short answer is we really don't know how uh, music like this would have been performed at the time. Because she was a nun and uh, living within a convent, it may be that it was all simply done um, without instruments, uh, a cappella, as we would say now, um, and uh, sang in unison. But um, it's also entirely possible that they did use instruments like the organistrum, which is a, a kind a large hurdy-gurdy instrument which plays a drone and can also support the melodic line of the singers um, and uh, the mode of performance of course is really hard to tell because we don't have a continuous tradition other than that of singing Gregorian chant and that even that has changed a lot over the centuries between then and now so we have to kind of imaginatively reconstruct the way it might have been done um, but nevertheless, it gives us an idea of the kind of uh, mystical music that was made at the time. And one thing that does stand out about it is that you can have a drone and a drone kind of works as a way of supporting it because it gives you the keynote of the mode. And over the top of that, we hear the melody unfold and the rhythm that goes with it, as far as we know, is dictated essentially by the rhythm of the words. Mm. And uh, so there is perhaps something analogous in that it's a, a time in which uh, probably musical practices in the west and the east were a little bit closer than they became later on many of the instruments uh, were related or um, even borrowed from uh, the middle east into europe during the middle ages partly as a result of the crusades and and therefore ironically the the kind of um, uh, encounters cultural encounters that arose from that um, but the focus is on melody and rhythm rather than on harmony, which mm. really comes later on in Western music. Uh, and that uh, is the kind of tradition which is also fundamental to many music uh, cultures around the world, um, including the sort of music that we're hearing in this program. Listeners may be familiar with some, you know, Indian classical music, Chinese classical music and so forth. Again, the focus is on melody and rhythm. Uh, rather than on harmony. It's kind of embellished melody. Um, and uh, that's also, I guess, typical of uh, the Turkish music that we're going to hear. And and in order to give listeners a, a, a better understanding of, um, of what they're going to hear, I really want us to focus for a little bit um, now on the sorts of instruments that would have been around at the time when Rumi uh, and his contemporaries and his son as well, um, you know, were formalizing the, these parts, these aspects of their spiritual life and uh, and that the sema ceremony was actually developing and, and potentially you know being formalized into into the sort of ceremony that we're going to experience in the second half of the, this concert in ottoman baroque now several instruments um are, are part of a core ensemble you were telling me about offline actually um not not long ago um perhaps you could tell uh, listeners and and, and uh, ex explain to us what what sort of instruments are actually in integral to this music and maybe some of the analogous instruments with the the rebecca sounding instrument that we heard just then with sequentia 
Yeah. Uh, one of the instruments that is uh, very similar to that, which is used in Turkish music and lots of music across the, uh, the Middle East, is the rebab, which is actually essentially the same thing as what in Europe was called a rebek. Um, it's a small uh, bowed string instrument, uh, a little bit like a tiny violin, um, but with a, a kind of rounded body shape rather than a flat one. Uh, and these come in various types with two, three, four strings, um, mostly uh, only a couple of strings. Um, and so that's one of the, the kind of basic instruments. So I don't think we're going to hear it in this particular program. It is one of the instruments which is uh, basic to this kind of ensemble. Um, the other ones that are important uh, also have some analogies to Western instruments. Um, one of the most interesting ones is the ney, which is an end-blown flute. Now, it uh, makes it sound a little bit like the Western flute, like the Baroque flute um, or the recorder. Uh, and it is an instrument that looks a little bit like uh, something like a recorder in that you hold it in front of you, it has finger holes and, and you blow into the end of it. However, the thing that makes the sound quite a lot different is that the way that the sound is uh, generated when you blow into it works in a slightly different way. On uh, the Western flute, so the, the orchestral flute or the Baroque flute, uh, you hold the instrument sideways and it has a hole that you blow across the top of, which uh, generates the sound. The principle is a bit like if you uh, have a, you know, a soft drink bottle and you blow across the top of it, when you get the, the air at the right angle, it will resonate with the volume of air inside the bottle and it produces one particular note corresponding to the, to the size and shape of the bottle. Um, I guess most people have had that experience of, you know, getting it at the right angle and you go, oh, there's that sound. Um, so on the, the ney, um, that's very much the principle as well, in that instead of blowing across a hole on the instrument, like on the Western flute, the hole is actually the end of the instrument. So it really is like the sort of blowing across the end of the, the Coke bottle. Uh, except that, of course, it's a much more sophisticated design. The end, uh, the edge of the instrument is is quite fine, and so it allows you to uh, produce a very flexible sound. And by having finger holes, of course, you can change the pitch to play melodies as well. Um, to to play it, uh, it's held in the mouth, but at a an angle of um, uh, 45 degrees or a little bit less, um, and then you, you kind of uh, move the instrument around until you get exactly the right spot where you get that uh, resonant effect, and then you can produce a sound which is slightly more breathy than the Western flute, uh, often a little bit more like the very early Baroque flutes, actually, from the 1680s or so, when the Baroque flute was new. They have this kind of soft-edged, warm, dark sound, and it's a, a little bit like that. Um, so in a minute, hopefully, we can listen to a little bit of the, the neigh yes. to get an impression of what that sounds like. And I, I, unfortunately, listeners can't see what you've been gesturing with, with your hands, um, but the, the, the notion of uh, the way that it's held and, and uh, the, the, the 45 degree roughly angle that, uh, at which one uh, a player would hold it as well, it, it's sort of a, a fascinating um, balancing act between, uh, between the instrument and, and then the, the breath control. And uh, I think it, it allows for quite a lot of flexibility. And uh, what I was fascinated as I was researching uh, a bit into to nays and, and their sound production is that they tend to be made in particular lengths for particular keys. Uh, 
So one nay to play in one particular piece needs to actually be a physical length, you know, this long. You know. And uh, and then when you're going to change keys, because maybe you're in a, a different a sort of mode uh, for, for another uh, part of the program, then another instrument would be required because th that's one of the limitations of this sort of instrument. Yeah, but that's just a very similar thing to, you know, playing the recorder or something in Western music. They come in different sizes for different uh, for different keys. Um, I guess the Ney is not set up to play um, all of the in-between notes so flexibly uh, as Western instruments are designed to do, but um, very much the same thing as with the natural trumpet, for example, and the, the natural horn that we see in concerts. And listeners may have noticed when the horns are playing in a Brandenburg concert, they often have uh, several sets of tubing on their music stand um, because when the key of the piece changes, perhaps for a different movement, they have to take out one piece of the instrument and put in a different one to make the tube longer or shorter so that they can play in that particular key. And so I guess it's a, a very similar thing. That's right. And and in fact, the, the, the notion of in terms of notation for a, a nay as well is is uh, representative of this fact that it's like a more of a physical thing rather than relating to one particular scale because um, because the names of the positions that uh, one holds one fingers it at uh, are the same across all scales as it were because it's got to do with the position of the fingers on the instrument rather than the name of the note itself so it's yeah. it's a different it's obviously a different approach uh, to 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 notating it's more like tablature one might see for a lute instrument or a guitar yeah exactly so um uh in the same way that um when you get a piece of uh you know, pop, pop music for guitar, it'll have um, chord symbols above and often a little diagram that shows you where to put your fingers on the keyboard to make uh, on the fingerboard to to make that particular chord. Uh, and so it's telling you not the names of the notes, but um, what the, the finger position is. And so if you use a capo to, you know, to move the position further up the instrument, uh, you're still doing the same fingering, but it will sound in a different key. Mm. So I guess it's a, a analogous to that in that uh, it's a kind of notation that's about how you play the instrument rather than the abstract uh, effect of the, the note that comes out. Now, a fantastic musician who is very aware of all of these things because he is literally the second in command, as it were, of this, this Ottoman group that's coming out to perform with Brandenburg, Rafik Hakan Talu, he has released several albums of this traditional Ottoman music, and there's one in, one track in particular that I wanted to play for listeners. It's a, a taksim that features three instruments: the tanbul, which is Hakan's uh, instrument of of choice, a ney, and the kanun. And uh, and uh, what you're going to hear in 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 uh, this uh, this recording is an improvised uh, sort of collaboration between these three instruments on a particular mode. And it, I think it's a, a wonderful example of the, the colors and, and these particular instruments obviously playing together and how the, um, the, the sorts of improvisational style, well, how this sort of improvisational style uh, works in, um, in, in music that is analogous with the, the ceremony that we're going to hear in the second half. Great. Um, and uh, I think your recording opens with uh, the sound of the neigh, so that's something to listen out for. Uh, the other instruments we haven't described yet, but let's do this as a little kind of listening exercise and invite listeners to, uh, to just listen to the sound of these other two instruments as they come along and see if you can identify 
what kind of instrument this is. How is the sound being generated? And uh, what sort of instrument would make those sounds? And then we'll talk about a little more about them afterwards. So this is Tanvu Ne Kanun Berabe Taksim, performed by Refik Hakan Talu and his ensemble Soz Saz Istanbul in 2014. <laughs> three instruments there Alan but perhaps um, you might like to assist uh, our listeners in thinking about which one is the tanbur which one is the nay obviously the nay I think it's clear as to which one that one was and which one was the kanun so tanbur kanun what what are these instruments okay so um, I guess uh, listening to that listeners will have um, picked up that uh, there was one instrument which was, uh, well, there are two instruments which are kind of plucked. And uh, one of those is the tanbua, which is a long-necked lute-type instrument, uh, a little bit like, looks a little bit like the bazooki in Greek music, and I'm sure that's not coincidental, but it's a, a uh, characteristically Turkish form of, of that kind of instrument. So uh, the way that it, it works and the way that it sounds is a little bit like the lute or the guitar, um, it's uh, so it has a body and a long neck, and and you um, pluck the strings. Uh, the other one, the kanon, is a type of zither, and so I wonder if anybody picked up that sound. That's a little bit like the dulcimer or the uh, the sorts of zither that are used in Central Europe as well. Um, it's a very ancient form of instrument, which. Uh, has been uh, has been used in, in various cultures over a very long time, going right back certainly to the Middle Ages, including in, in Western European music. Well, for those listeners who have been paying attention to the Brandenburg social media account, um, they would have seen that there was a video released not long ago with Tarek Hussain, who is an Australian uh, Turkish um, musician, and he uh, is going to be playing the Kunun as part of the Ottoman Baroque program and was interviewed by uh, Paul Dyer uh, in a wonderful setting, actually, at Kadri's in Edgecliff. And he gave an a, a impromptu performance on the Kunun. So, so uh, that video is online and, and you can find it on YouTube and or through, uh, through the Brandenburg's Facebook uh, account, among other places. And yes, it, you'll get exactly the same sound. That, that it's, it, it is... 
it does sound ancient in a way, doesn't it? It's got something in terms of the quality, the sound quality that um, that seems to harken back to a time you know, f- in the far distant past, as it were. Yeah, and all of these kinds of instruments, um, like the, the zither-type instruments, the psaltery was the Western European version of a similar kind of instrument in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's essentially just a soundboard with a set of strings stretched across it, a little bit like a harp with a, a backboard. Um, and uh, the idea is very straightforward, really. It's just one of those ways that humans have worked out how to generate interesting sounds by stretching a string across a, uh, across a frame. Uh, and then you have a series of strings of different lengths that give you the different notes um, of the scale. Uh, and by having a soundboard or, or a sound box behind it, that helps to re- make it resonate and uh, project the sound. But the fundamental idea is uh, the same one that underlies the harpsichord and the piano as well. They're just big kind of mechanical versions of the same kind of instrument. And in fact, making the the um, the connection between the harpsichord and in this program, uh, Paul Dye is actually going to be playing an ottavina, so a very small uh, sort of harpsichord-like in- instrument. Um, and the kanun is is a wonderful idea because Alan, as you would already know, the kanun player has a particular um, implement on his uh, on his uh, th- finger to be able to uh, pluck the uh, the the strings of his instrument in a particular way that is very reminiscent of the way that that um, on an ottavina or on a harpsichord the the strings are, are activated by jacks essentially. Yeah, that's right. Which uh, is just a mechanical way of plucking the string um, with a, a plectrum, um, much in the same way that a a guitar player plucks the string with a plectrum. Um, it's just a, a kind of built-in way of doing that. And in the case of the Canon player, the, the plectrum is kind of attached to your finger rather than held between the fingers. But the idea is very much the same. And uh, so it does make it a distinctive, but it does make, it makes that distinctive kind of sound because of the sorts of strings and uh, which are um, multiple for each note, I think, and, uh, and the kind of construction of the sound box and so forth. But the principle on which it works is very similar to um, Western instruments of the same kind. Now, there's another instrument that I, I know that the, the Turkish group uh, coming out are, are bringing, which is a kudum, uh, which is a percussive instrument. Perhaps you could quickly tell us about the kudum and, and, and how it is used. Yeah, the, the kudum is um, a set of uh, a small kettle drums, basically. So uh, our timpani in the Western Orchestra are really big kettle drums. And they have their origins also in military music. Um, originally, uh, big drums like that were, uh, and smaller ones as well, were slung across the horse's back so that the player could um, play while uh, marching with uh, a, a mounted military band. Uh, and uh, they were used in military music in, uh, in the East and then introduced into Western music, in fact, from the Middle East. Um, in the uh, Middle Ages, first in the small version, which were called knuckers in in uh, European languages, um, and the word was actually borrowed from uh, from Middle Eastern languages, which called the the instrument by a similar name. So this is a version of that kind of instrument. So small size. If you imagine the timpani that we see on the stage in the orchestra, uh, shrunk down to a much smaller size. Uh, it's that kind of instrument. Of course, another another instrument that we haven't mentioned that will feature in this program is is the voice, 
and we have uh, two very experienced uh, Ottoman singers that are that are coming with the Turkish ensemble, as well as uh, a small contingent of the Brandenburg Choir, just eight singers in total. And as part of the first half, we're going to have some Western settings of uh, of Rumi's poetry with three distinct settings of a poem known as This Marriage, which has become a very popular uh, work, and then other traditional Turkish music, which will be sung during the Sema ceremony. Um, Alan, could you tell us about the, the sorts of vocalizations or, or vocal music um, that is linked to the Sufi tradition and what you've learnt about, about that sort of vocal music and how the voice is used in that tradition? It is one of the really fascinating things about uh, encountering different music cultures in that the, the voice is, of course, the most fundamental instrument in pretty much all world music cultures. Uh, and it's also an instrument which can make the biggest variety of sounds of just about any instrument, not only different, a wide range of pictures, but an enormously different range of vocal timbre, of tone colours, uh, which will often depend on the language in which one is singing, uh, but also just on the kind of aesthetic choices or um, qualities that are valued in a particular music culture. So uh, if listeners have heard any um, Beijing opera, for example, the very kind of piercing style of, of sound that's made in that kind of singing in, in Chinese um, uh, theatrical music is very different from what we get in Western opera singing, which again is very different from the styles of singing we get in uh, popular music. Um, and uh, so this is just uh, another kind of example, I guess, of the many different sorts of things that human voices can do. Um, I don't know anything much about the kind of technical training of singers in this Turkish tradition, uh, but what we're going to hear, I think, will make a really interesting uh, kind of comparison between the way that they sing and the way that our Western trained singers uh, sing in the choral settings of that wonderful poem, This Marriage, which we're going to hear on the same program. Of course, we're contrasting here essentially a solo style of singing, uh, which the Turkish musicians would be doing uh, against an ensemble style of singing in the, um, in the Western uh, settings of the poetry. But uh, nevertheless, it will be really interesting just to, to keep those different sounds in mind and compare the different ways in which voices can be used. And as as a feature of uh, essentially the 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 piece that will end the first half, um, Paul was uh, Paul was very specific when he asked me to uh, to compose a, a climactic building sort of uh, you know exciting uh, end to the first half. And uh, and I couldn't help but um, but also uh, ask the the choir and and, and these two vocalists um, to to be involved in in that. So rehearsals are, are just about to get underway, and and, and I'm sure um, some of my ideas will be changed and and morphed and, and shaped uh, ahead of the, the the actual concert itself. Uh, but but I'm looking forward to trying to put all these vocalists together in the same room, as it were, with the instrumentalists, and and to see what uh, what comes out of that. It is one of those real thrills as a composer, is it not, to to be able to work with the musicians in kind of workshopping a new piece, particularly when it's something quite, in a sense, experimental like this, of putting together 
uh, quite different kinds of music into one piece. Well, very much so. And uh, real realistically, uh, I I wouldn't want to uh, put something you know hard and fast in front of the Turkish musicians, especially um, un- until we've had a chance to talk about these things and and for me to also experience their approach and get a better idea of how they approach music. Um, do they really need anything notated, or is it more instructional? Um, you know, the these sorts of uh, questions that I have for them. It's it's going to be fascinating to go through that process. Process. And um, and I'll be all, all you know all the more experienced for that, which um, I, I can never thank Paul and, and the Brandenburg enough for the opportunity to do so. But uh, another composer who's been given the chance to write for this program is uh, Joseph Twist, um, commonly goes by Joe Twist actually. Um, and now he uh, he is sort of between Queensland and, and the United States of America these days, between Brisbane and New York. But he's composed a an Australian setting of this marriage to go with the American and British settings by Eric Whittaker and Ed Newton Rex, uh, respectively. So we even have uh, among Anglophone uh, culture, we have three different settings of, of this marriage, which is quite interesting too. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to hear that, hearing that. Um, some listeners may be familiar with the Eric Whitaker setting, which is quite famous and has been done quite a lot by choirs here. In fact, some may even have sung it. It is a, a wonderful setting of the poetry, which I think uh, captures quite a lot about it. But it does remind me also that uh, this kind of collaboration in a way is perfectly situated in a city like Sydney, you know, it's where modern multicultural Australia is in a way the perfect site for this kind of collaboration and interaction between different cultures with so many people um, of Turkish background now living in Australia and uh, so many, of course, other, other uh, cultures of the Middle East represented here. Um, this kind of internationalism, the, the kind of cosmopolitanism in a way, of uh, this kind of program is going to be really exciting to hear. And I'm really looking forward to hearing these different settings of the same poem as well, which has its origins way back in uh, 13th century Turkey. Now, for listeners, I have a recording of Eric Whitaker's uh, setting of this marriage, uh, which which features a, a vocal ensemble called BYU Singers. And uh, and on this on this album, Whitaker Choral Works Volume Two, uh, which was released in twenty fourteen, um, I think there was there was something about this particular recording um, that that struck me as being quite true to the the music as 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 I saw it. I've sung this several times now, and um, and it, it it is an interesting uh, piece in the sense that the way it's notated um, is quite different to what you will usually see in in choral music or Western Western music generally, because there's no uh, there's no time signature. You know, you have uh, you, you have no barring between uh, between, and it's basically one line after another um, where the text is the most central. Uh, thing along with with the the harmony and the pitch, but the text really is the the structural element that brings everything and keeps everything together, and hence the reverence to the the poetry itself. Are you familiar with this work, Alan? Have you sung um, uh, this particular setting yourself? Yeah, I haven't had the chance to sing it myself, but I've heard uh, heard it in performance a number of times, and uh, it really is a piece that kind of uh, draws you in in some in a way. I was going to say it reaches out and grabs you, but it doesn't. It, it kind of opens the door almost and it invites you in, I think, uh, to to kind of enter into the poetry. And as you say, it's um, it's a very clever way of, of um, responding to a piece 
of uh, ancient and uh, and also of non-Western poetry, in that, as you say, it is a, it's about the words and the kind of the rhythm of the words. Uh, and that's something that uh, resonates with European medieval practice, but also very much with um, Middle Eastern approaches to the structure of music, I think. So let's have a listen to this setting by BYU singers um, of Eric Whitaker's This Marriage. And then um, as it's going, perhaps we can chat more about him because he certainly has some, some very interesting things that he does as well. So this is This Marriage recorded in 2014 by BYU singers. Now, as the music continues, Alan, um, there are several things immediately when I first saw this score that I thought were particularly interesting. And I'd like to uh, hear your take on it. Uh, obviously, the fact that there's no time signature. So, so I mean, that, that was, was quite interesting. Um, but also this, uh, this tempo marking of senza misura, freely and tenderly. Perhaps you could tell listeners or explain to listeners why are things like time signatures or tempo markings quite um, relevant or important to Western musicians and, and, and in Western musical practice? Yeah, for a lot of Western classical musicians, seeing a score that doesn't have a time signature is a bit scary because the time signature is what tells us the beat, basically. It tells us um, whether it's in uh, groups of three, like waltz tempo, one, two, three, one, two, three, or is it in a march tempo, three, you know, four, four, um, which feels completely different, or is it in something more exotic like, you know, seven, eight, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Any of those things is a regular beat in its own uh, in its own way. And so uh, it's normally the kind of starting point. The first thing that you look at when you pick up a new piece of sheet music is uh, what key is it in? And uh, what's my starting note maybe, but above all, what's the rhythm? You know, what's the, the basic uh, beat that I'm counting in? And so when we get a piece of music like this that says, um, that doesn't have a time signature, it doesn't tell you what the beat is. And in fact, it says, Senza misura in Italian meaning without measure, you know, no, in other words, there's no beat. Uh, so how are you going to keep together when you've got an ensemble of people singing at, at the same time? Um, I guess that's a, a challenge for the conductor as well. How do I give the beat as it were and keep everybody together when there is no beat? And so the answer to that, I suppose, is getting familiar with the music and also, of course, relying on the, the words and 
there's the fact that there's no beat doesn't mean that there's no rhythm, of course. So the, the music is written out in rhythmic notation that tells us this is a minimum, this is a crotchet, you know, one note is longer, one is shorter, and so on. Um, but it's quite flexible in the way that that's done because it's supposed to create this atmosphere, I guess, of kind of um, soft and smooth and flexible atmosphere, which is really a way of declaiming the poetry. Of, it's almost like you're reading out the poetry on uh, particular musical pictures. And the rhythm the composer has written in, but it essentially reflects the rhythm of the words, right? So yeah. uh, it's it, it creates a very intimate kind of feeling, I think. And it, 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 uh, took, me, it took me back to um, essentially chant and, and the early discussion that we even had uh, just, just now about Hildegard von Bingen in the sense that the, the notated earlier forms of notation for chant uh, do not have some sort of, you know, tempo marking or, or you know the, these things don't exist and it really is the text that will dictate the speed at which you might uh, take a, a particular work yeah and the form of notation that had been invented by the time of Hildegard of course we're talking nearly a thousand years ago it's when music notation was a really new thing in European music as well and at that time it uh, showed somewhat approximately what the pitch of the notes were, um, how high or low they were in the scale, but it didn't tell you anything meaningful much about rhythm. And so uh, we don't know for sure how they did that. Did they in fact impose some kind of rhythmic patterns on it? Or as we usually assume, uh, did they simply follow the rhythm of the words? And uh, so it creates, uh, Whittaker's setting creates something of that kind of atmosphere. Um, although we're singing in harmony in four separate parts, all the voices are moving at the same time. So that what we hear is a series of chords that creates more or less the kind of effect of chant, just harmonised chant almost. That's right. And and the rhythmic unison, without that rhythmic unison, there are subtle, you know, ornaments here or, or there to the, to the rhythmic unison. But without that structure, then I think this piece would have been much harder to get together because essentially there is an underlying constant for the, the singers and for the conductor, and that's that uh, the words are all moving together. The, 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 the group is actually singing, singing this one, a, a, at least in the initial um, parts of the, the, the work. It really is very homogenous, rhythm, rhythmically speaking. Yeah, and that will be one of the really interesting things to listen out for in this concert with three different settings of the same words in the same program. Uh, to hear how different composers may come up with, um, and I'm, I have no idea what the other two uh, are doing with it, but uh, they may be radically different solutions to the same uh, kind of challenges that are set by this beautiful poetry. And I, I would like to to play the uh, recording of the Newton Rex uh, setting as, as well, which is the British setting of, of this marriage. But just before I do that, I did want to mention a couple of things about Eric Witter because he is a fascinating figure and I do encourage um, listeners to go out and seek out a little bit of, of what he does. He, in fact, is responsible for the largest digital choir ever created, the virtual choir, um, which was a project he took on on a whim, actually, uh, almost having been inspired by a, uh, a subscriber of his who sent through a video of themselves singing one of his works. It was a young soprano who did that. And 
now they have uh, they've I think they're up to version number six or seven of of re- releases by this virtual choir featuring thousands of singers across uh, the 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 de- basically across uh, time and space. But thanks to technology, are able to sing uh, and and perform some of his works uh, together. Uh, yeah, that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? We saw quite a bit of that during the lockdown period um, the last couple of years. Uh, of uh, virtual ensembles where uh, of individuals sitting in front of their computer basically singing into a microphone uh, and those uh, being put together into uh, into one ensemble and there, there were some fantastic examples which listeners may have come across of um, whole symphony orchestras uh, of people uh, members of the orchestra who couldn't come into rehearsal all sitting in their own homes playing their part in a Beethoven symphony or something which was then uh, put together um, by the by a producer to make a kind of composite recording and uh, shows us yeah some of the remarkable things that can be done with technology just within the last few years and the reason why I wanted to get us onto the topic of technology was um, actually to talk a little bit about Ed uh, Newton Rex because there is crossover between both Eric Whitaker and Ed Newton Rex not just in the sense that both of them have set uh, the the words of this marriage to, to music, but uh, Ed Newton Rex is actually a uh, technologist before being a composer. And although his background is in choral music and in, in music composition, um, he, uh, he he is more famous for having been the first person to create an a, a musical AI, so a generative uh, a generative piece of software that will literally write music for you. All you have to do is say, you know, for example, I would like a piece in the style of Johann Sebastian Bach, and then off it goes and it provides a solution uh, but um yeah that was uh, the, fascinating what what young composers are, are, are getting up to yeah and so lucky you've got a job as a music librarian if <laughs> you, you might be put out of work as a composer when, if generative ai takes over but um, no, i i don't think that's going to be a real threat to uh, to the creativity of human beings and, uh in the foreseeable future um, but I don't know this this setting by Newton Rex, so I'd be really interested to to hear uh, how it compares with the Whitaker. So perhaps before we talk about it, uh, I'll I'll play an excerpt for listeners, but also for Alan, um, who who's not so familiar with with this work. Uh, now the ensemble, Alan, you would definitely be familiar with. This is a recording by the group Vochus Eight, who have gone from strength to strength and have many recordings, uh, reclaimed recordings under their belt now. In 2011, as part of celebrations for the royal wedding, Vodjase decided to release this recording as a as a celebration. It wasn't actually, uh, you know, tied in with the the ceremony itself, uh, nor was it commissioned for the event. But they released a recording uh, in deference to Kate Middleton and Prince William, who were getting married, obviously at that at, at that time. So, without any further ado, I'll put on this music, which comes from Vodjase Eight of Ed Newton Rex's work. This marriage. May these vows and this marriage be blessed. May it be sweet with this marriage like wine and halva. Like the day. 
As this setting by Ed Newton Rex continues, Alan, I think it, it, it's it's fascinating that the there should be two such starkly different approaches to the the words that we're seeing. Um, it's not immediately audible um, for listeners without the score, but when you look at the music here, we have literally changing almost changing time signatures on every single bar. With every single word, you know, uh, where where the rhythm has been dictated very specifically by the composer as to how the groupings of beats, where the strong and the weak beats are, and also the 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 tempo of the the text, um, you know, it's it's a completely different approach to 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 Whittaker's approach. Uh, that is so interesting to hear you say that as uh, as a composer, Hugh, because uh, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the score of this, so I don't know what it looks like on the page. But when you listen to the two pieces side by side, uh, to me, the effect that they produce is actually very similar to what Whitaker achieves. It's just a different way of uh, writing it down on the page. So you can either, on the one hand, write out very precisely what you want the rhythm to be, um, but in a way that, that reflects the rhythm of the words effectively. Uh, and a lot of composers like Benjamin Britten did that in, um, in a lot of his settings. Uh, and uh, Whittaker has simply skipped that step and said, um, I'm not going to bother to tell you exactly how the, the rhythm goes, just do it um, according to the, the note values that I've given you, but underlying that is the, the rhythm of the words. And the effect um, of the four voices, or the four parts, kind of declaiming the text altogether at the same time as a series of chords effectively uh, without much kind of interaction between the parts other than the fact that they're singing uh, together in parallel um, produces in some respects a similar kind of atmosphere to what the, the Whitaker does to me. That's right. And because underlying both approaches is rhythmic homogeneity for the, the ensemble. Now, in, in this setting, um, uh, listeners will hear that there are more than four parts. Um, you, in fact, you have divisi across the entire SATB ensemble, so, so eight parts in, in total. And that, that's just more harmonic richness, as it were. I think, uh, I think uh, Ed, Ed Newton-Rex was, was wanting to really get into some, some richer uh, sort of harmony that in the Western tradition we quite, especially in choral tradition, we quite like hearing. And, um, and it, it does have a, an element of, of the English choral tradition in it, this, this particular sound and the harmonies that he's chosen. Um, from for, for my ears, but mm. but it's still rhythmically homogenous. You know, the the parts are all moving at the same time, much as they were with the Whitaker. And so, even though he's dictated very strictly the rhythm and and how the 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 time signatures are used to dictate strong and and weak beats, it actually produces, as you say, a very similar audible effect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which goes to show, I suppose, that there are you know many different ways of skinning a cat, as it were, in uh, in music composition. Um, it's quite right what you say that it produces a very rich kind of harmony, and it has a sort of close harmony, almost a barbershop sort of feel about the the way that the harmonies develop. But uh, to me, both of them are are very uh, respond to the kind of poetry it is because it's so intimate. 
the poetry is all about, you know, how, how much the, the poet loves the beloved and the uh, the intimacy of the relationship. And so those those warm, thick chords create that sense of intimacy, I think. Um, and the fact that the voices all move together uh, makes it gives you the feel of one person speaking to another rather than of a kind of a whole conversation between a, a lot of different people. The point is, it's me to you, you know, the lover to the beloved, and, uh, and that comes across in both those settings. So what will be the next interesting step will be to see what uh, the Australian composer Joe Twist does with that. Does he go with a similar kind of concept or is he going to come at it from a different angle and give us something that, that really contrasts with, uh, with those two settings? Um, uh, I don't know if you've heard Joe's setting yet, but I'm really looking forward to finding out. Well, I've heard snippets of things in rehearsals, so um, I'll keep my mouth shut and, and, and I'll just suggest to listeners that they'll have to, uh, <laughs> they'll have to come to the concert hall to find out because it's not every, it's not every concert that we have uh, Australian, literally Australian composers commissioned for, to write new works for a program and it is something that Brandenburg is very proud and, and, uh, of doing and, and uh, uh, looking forward to celebrating in the context of such a multicultural uh um you know concert program uh yeah and uh, that's one of the really exciting things i think about a program like this that we're hearing new sounds some we're hearing uh as we often do in the brandenburg in a way um very ancient sounds that are new to us but also we're hearing new new sounds that are, are being created uh, especially for us in this particular program and so to, to go and hear something that's the first performance in the world of a new piece is always exciting of course as we've talked about uh in the program there's a lot of new music with these three settings of uh, of of this marriage and and some some settings of music that I've prepared uh, as well that have been commissioned by Paul Dyer, um, uh, but but we we do actually have some actual Ottoman Baroque music coming from uh, of all places a Polish musician, which is an incredible thing to put your to sort of try and get one's head around. Um, but perhaps you could tell us about the key musical figure in the story of Ottoman Baroque 2023, which is Ali Ufki, also known as Wojciech Bobowski or Albertus Bobovius. He has several, several names, Alan. This is a fascinating uh, figure in, in music history, and I'd love for, for listeners to hear a bit more about his story. Yeah, he's a remarkable figure, and as you say, one of the most important uh, figures in uh, the history of uh, Ottoman music um, and the interactions between Western and uh, Turkish music in the 17th century. Really important because he was the first person to notate a lot of Turkish music, that the tradition had been entirely oral. But because he came from a European background, he had the skills to write it down. The background of the story is that he was born uh, Wojciech Bobowski, as you said, in Lviv, which is now uh, have been in the news a little bit recently because it's in Ukraine now, but at the time it was considered to be Polish. Um, he appears to have been effectively kidnapped by uh, Tatar, um, we might call them pirates almost, uh, at, uh, in his early life when he was in his 20s and was taken as a slave to to Turkey. This was not an uncommon thing. There were raiders on both sides who uh, went from Europe to North Africa, particularly, and vice versa, uh, capturing slaves. And so there were many um, European slaves in the Ottoman Empire, just as the Europeans were taking slaves from, particularly from Africa, uh, in the period that followed. Uh, so he was um, 
possibly born a nobleman because he was very well educated. He uh, was familiar with the Latin classics and he was also a well-trained musician. And because of these skills, he was passed on by the slave traders to the uh, royal court of the Ottoman Empire. And he established himself there as an important uh, translator. He spoke at least 13 and maybe up to 17 languages. Uh, he could read and write in, in all of those languages. He translated the Bible into Turkish, and that remains the, um, the standard translation of the Bible in Turkish today. Uh, he also uh, set hymns in, in Turkish, uh, but he had converted to Islam. So he was a really important figure in kind of crossing the divides between cultures. Uh, he wrote an account of Islam in Latin, which um, made, uh, which attempted to explain Islamic faith to uh, Western Europeans at a time when Islam was not at all well known in the West. Uh, so a fascinating, important figure, but he was also uh, an important musician. And so he composed um, music for the Ottoman court and uh, fascinating that we're going to be able to hear one of those pieces in this program. Well, in indeed. And, uh, and it's interesting to me that uh, his music and, and his musical output has uh, been, in a way, integrated into the Sufi tradition, uh, so sits alongside some of these much earlier settings of music uh, that go back to Rumi's time and, and come from even, you know, Rumi's direct descendants. You know, it, it really is quite, uh, as you were saying, cosmopolitan and the way that Turkish music traditions like the, the Mevlevi uh, music tradition have integrated lots of different influences into their practice. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, we should also point out that a lot of the music associated with this Sufi tradition with the Mevlevi order was developed over a long time. So it has very ancient roots going back to the 13th century, but it's not as if that was set in stone and has been done the same way ever since. In fact, during the, the what we think of as the Baroque period in the 17th and 18th centuries, a lot of new music was composed by court composers uh, associated with the Mevlevi order uh, around the Ottoman court. And uh, those have become important parts of the, the tradition of, of that order as, as well, right through uh, to particularly the 19th century until the order was uh, suppressed for some time after the First World War. Uh, so um, it, the, in the 17th and 18th centuries, the Mevlevi order was very prestigious. It was associated with the royal court and uh, lots of uh, new um, Turkish uh, classical music was composed by uh, musicians associated with the order and uh, also has a part in the, um, in the sacred tradition of the Mevlevi order. Now, one of the pieces that has been shared, uh, a recording of which has been shared with me uh, by Rifik Hakan Talu, uh, is the Buslik Makam Peshref, which we will hear r almost at the end of the, f the first half of the, the concert. And, uh, and, and in this setting, it's, it's purely an Ottoman, uh, uh, traditional Ottoman uh, musical treatment of the, of the work uh, that we're going to hear. But in, in the concert, it's actually going to be a collaboration between the, uh, the Turkish musicians and the Brandenburg musicians playing all together. Um, and I'm not quite sure exactly how Hakan plans on, on doing this because we haven't started rehearsals yet. But, uh, but it'll be fascinating to see all of those things coming together and yet again, a collaboration uh, uh, of this music written by, uh, composed by Ali Ufki. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be fascinating. Can we hear a bit of the uh, 
traditional Turkish version of this. And uh, so listeners will be able to then compare that with how it comes out in the collaborative version in the concert. Absolutely. So this is the Busadik Makam Peshrev featuring Refik Hakan Toulouse Ensemble in a recording made live in concert earlier this year. Fascinating as we listen to this music, Alan, is that this music was composed by a man who's, who's literally um, been across the, the world and, and well, has integrated himself into another musical culture to be able to write the music the way that it is. But at a time that's analogous with composers that we've talked about, like Barbara Strozzi or Johann Heinrich Schmelzer, you know, pre-Bach, you know, these, these sorts of figures that we talk about during the, the, the Baroque period and obviously the period of time just ahead of, uh, of Bach and, and, and Handel. Um, it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear this, this music. Yeah, it sure is. And uh, the time, even if he was uh, well-educated in music in the Western tradition before he went to Turkey, um, the... Uh, Aliyevsky probably didn't know much of the most modern uh, music in 
in Europe that was coming from Italy at that time, perhaps some of it, but I imagine that his training would have been mostly in Western polyphony. And so uh, this is a very different style of music from that. Um, very hard to, to tell how much Western influence there might be in what he composed, or did he simply adapt himself to the uh, environment in which he was living and compose in a, a style that was typical of uh, the Ottoman uh, court at the time that he was there. I guess the Turkish musicians may have a, a better answer to that than, uh, than you or I could have, uh, but it is really interesting to hear there's, there's some kind of a crossover going on there between his uh, European background, presumably, and his uh, experience at the Ottoman court. Now, uh, there's one thing uh, I will actually mention to listeners ahead of uh, going to the concert hall, and, and that th this program has been more specifically designed as, a, as, as an experience, um, and especially in deference to the, um, to the, uh, the actual ceremony of the second half, uh, the, the amount of applause during the program will probably be a lot less than, um, than, than our audiences would be, would be used to experiencing it, would be used to in the concert hall. And to just allow themselves to enjoy the experience without need, feeling a need to applaud would probably be the most appropriate way of, of allowing this experience and this, this music to wash over everyone collectively. You know, one of the, the things that can be difficult in the concert hall is to know when to clap or, or to know, you know, what sort of behavior is appropriate. And, and I think just sort of general re respect to the, these musicians who are actually performing parts of a religious ceremony in the second half, especially, you know, that is, that is something to really keep in mind when, when coming to the concert hall. Yeah, um, the repertoire that we most often hear from the orchestra tends to be made up of relatively short pieces. So the Valley Concerto, which uh, runs for perhaps 10 minutes or so, but it is often hard to know. You're supposed to clap, you know, between every movement or just at the end of the piece. And, uh, you know, we have particular conventions about that. So in some ways, it's great to know, you know, to, I can go into the, the concert hall and I don't need to clap at any time until I've heard the whole thing and can then respond to the to the whole experience of, of listening to this program as it, as it kind of uh, unfolds um, to us uh, on the stage and, and to our ears. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. Well, thank you, Alan, very much for your time today. Look, we, we could talk about all of these things, these instruments, these wonderful uh, musicians and, and choral settings for, for so long. You know, there, there's a lot to be, to, to be said there. But, um, but uh, it, it, you know, it, it would... Um, I, but I, I can't uh, emphasize enough just how popular this program has been as well and that tickets really are basically sold out in Brisbane and Melbourne. So if, if people are looking to, to, to get themselves a ticket, they really should get their skates on. Yeah. Yes, come to Sydney if, you, <laughs> if you're outside and, uh, and need to get a ticket. Yeah, this program, uh, when we had the, the Turkish musicians visiting the last time, the, all of the concerts sold out. I think it was enormously popular and uh, I'm sure it will be a, a huge hit again with Australian audiences. Um, this is such a, a wonderful experience to have in something that's really outside of what we normally get to, to experience in Australia that I'm, I'm sure people will um, enjoy it, but also find it a profoundly moving experience as well. Something really special that we don't get anywhere else. Before we finish you, I just wanted to mention that um, I've just uh, been to the uh, Biennial International Baroque Music Conference, which um, was this year held in Geneva. 
And uh, just coincidentally, one of the papers that was given at the conference was from an American musicologist, Scott Edwards, who has been doing a project on the soundscapes of Vienna in the 17th and 18th centuries. And his group developed a digital map showing the different places across the city where and the kinds of sounds you would hear in them. So that includes uh, places like the churches and the royal court and so forth, but also the taverns and the uh, the town squares and so forth. And what it shows is the enormous diversity of music that was being heard there. Now, when we've talked about uh, the influence of uh, Turkish music in the 17th and 18th centuries in, in Western Europe, mostly what we hear about is the kind of representations of Turkish military music played by the Janissary bands, uh, which we hear in pieces like Mozart's Rondo alla Turca, uh, which uh, has, is supposed to be kind of evoking that sound, not copying it, but, but giving the atmosphere somehow. But one of the things that uh, Scott Edwards in his research came up with was that uh, Austrians actually had um, exposure to much more varied and interesting experiences of Turkish music than you might think. Um, this is partly because of diplomatic missions that came from the Ottoman Empire, and at least one of those included the, the ambassador bringing his chamber music ensemble with him, who played music something along the lines of what we're going to hear played by the Turkish musicians in this program. And so this was actually heard in Western Europe. And during the siege of Vienna in 1683, this was one of the most emblematic interactions between the uh, Western powers and the Ottoman Empire during this period, which was remembered forever afterwards as an existential threat to, uh, to Western Europe um, with the, the Turkish army there on the doorstep of Vienna laying siege to the city. Uh, there were, um, the, the Austrians sent out uh, a mission to try and get help. And so they had to get people out of the city through the Turkish uh, siege lines uh, to make contact with their uh, with their friends outside. And they did this by dressing up in Turkish costume and walking through the Turkish camp singing Turkish songs so as not to arouse suspicion. So the fact that the uh, Viennese musicians or the Viennese uh, soldiers, they probably were, knew enough Turkish music to be able to convincingly sing a Turkish song as they walked through the Turkish camp uh, is quite a remarkable demonstration of the fact that the interactions were greater than we maybe think they were uh, and covered a wide, wider variety of music. So um, that was some just some new research that shows a little bit more about the interactions between Western and Ottoman musics in the 18th century and the 17th century. And uh, so we're going to now hear uh, kind of the latest iteration in a way of uh, the interaction between cultures and their musics that is coming to us in this program. Thank you again, Alan, for joining me today. And I can't wait to finally see Autumn of Rock come to life. Looking forward to that too, Hugh. Lovely to talk with you. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. 